Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I am your host, Finn Melanson. And in this episode, we chat with Dave Dombrow and Kevin Fallon, the co-founders of Speedland, a new trail running shoe brand on the market. We cover their backgrounds in the running industry at Nike, Under Armour, and Puma, how those experiences informed the mission at Speedland. We get into how they are repositioning the product as a piece of equipment instead of a shoe, how they communicate the overall value of what they're selling, how they differentiate their target personas, the advantages and disadvantages of starting a new brand in our sport, as well as the lessons of their entrepreneurial journey so far. Let's dig right in. While I haven't had a chance to try the shoe just yet, I will say that I'm such a big fan of disruptors in general in any industry, and Dave and Kevin are certainly that. I love the passionate conversation they are starting in the running community. And at the very least, I hope you will pick up on that in this one. So let's get started. Okay. Welcome to the single track, Kevin Fallon and Dave Dombrow, the co-founders of Speedland. All right. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. There's a lot I want to talk about when it comes to Speedland. You came on my radar because you have a shoe that costs $375, which the marketer in me is like, that's brilliant because it sparks a conversation on both sides of the aisle, which are equally passionate. Some people probably love it. Some people are like, what the hell? But I like to start out a little bit more lighthearted in, with a question, and that is, what is exciting you both the most about trail running these days? You want to start? Sure. I think there's many levels to, to talk about that, but there's a lot of exciting things. We're obviously deep in the product side, so we're really excited to see the level of innovation and the focus on trail that's happening. We were just at TRE recently, and there was renewed energy around run as a whole, and certainly that's spilling over into trail. So it's just wonderful to see what the different brands are doing and elevating the product, which kind of comes to where we're coming from, right? We want to, we believe the trail runner really needs that elevated product. And then beyond that product, I think just the experiences too. We're seeing the events just get uh, better and better, the coverage getting better and better. And, and we're really excited about that too, because it, it raises the whole sport and, and brings more people into it. So the idea of getting people more involved and being able to watch these events real time and track your runner, I think the technology applications in the event space are super exciting too. And then just being able to see what's going on around the globe. That's not really as regionalized anymore. It's a whole movement. So a lot of exciting things and we're excited to be a part of it. What do you think? I would just say that the the culture in trail running is it's really strong and but it's still in some weird way at least as we see it compared to some other sports in its infancy. So it still has a long way to grow and I think that excites us to be part of that. So you mentioned that you were both at TRE was that last week? Yes, uh, last week. Do you have a sense of whether our sport is growing and if it is growing how quickly and how much it's growing in proportion to other elements of running like road and track is, is our area of running where a lot of the growth is some of the growth is or maybe all of the growth i would say it's where some of the growth is happening i would say that what we just went through with the pandemic it actually accelerated uh trail running right because more people were getting outside more people were getting exposed to it and more people were hitting the trails just in general i think the data is showing that but at the same point running in general continues to grow and so i, I don't know if i could say it's outgrowing road running i mean it might it's, like you might find numbers where percentages are growing faster yeah, yeah. if still growing there's a lot of good growth there but it just can't compare in the scale of, of this road yeah. so but it's good to see those numbers healthy and strong i think there's a lot of runway like dave said so it's nice to see and there's i think more crossover between hiking and trail running too the mm. product being used in each and the way people approach it they don't necessarily want a, a hiking boot anymore a good trail shoe is appropriate for a broad of range things. of things now. So it's good good for the, the market. Let's talk about your backgrounds in the running industry. In doing my research, I've seen that you worked at Puma, I think it is, in with Nike or Under Armour? Both. All three Both. of those. All three of those. Okay. So <laughs> essentially the marquee brands in our sport. I'm curious if you could just talk about your background working for those companies and how those experiences informed how you're building Speedland right now. 
Yeah, sure. I'll start. We overlapped at all the, all three companies, as you said, so we had that in common. At Nike, I would say on my side, Dave, mostly focused on basketball, so okay. doing a lot of basketball design. And then at Puma, focused on all sports and running heavy, of course, spikes, of course, at that time, we had Usain Bolt. So Puma was uh, deep into running, both on the track and off the track. And then um, at Under Armour, again, across all sports and worked from everything from basketball to running to, to triathlon to everything. So yeah, all those experiences, they really fed what Speedland came to be from an innovation point of view, from a lot, lots of different points of view. So I would say our collective experience and Kevin talk a little about his side, maybe more on the innovation side. So yeah, same, same history in terms of brands. I started out at Nike doing soccer boots actually, and I had an engineering degree. So soccer turned out to be a really nice mix of technical kind of engineering things to learn about, but it of course is still an important cultural piece as well. And so there's the design that you have to mix in. And Dave and I overlapped in basketball. I did some basketball innovation at Nike too. And I think the similarities between running and soccer are not obvious, but they're really um, aligned in the sense that the footwear is a piece of equipment and a essential piece of equipment for both of these athletes. And what that means is they really, the, the consumers, the athletes really pay attention to the product. It's not exactly the same as it is in basketball, let's put it that way, where maybe the style and that component is maybe a little bit more important than the mm. performance in some ways. Mm. The cultural aspects, I would say in running and in soccer, it's about the performance. And when athletes are talking in millimeters and little details, that they're really paying attention. It's very important to them. That's a background on, on, on soccer and my uh, relationship to performance products. And at Puma, it was more soccer and, and innovation side of things. And then at Under Armour was full innovation for me. And so that's a little different role, but trying to supply technologies, performance enhancing technologies into the different categories that were significant to that brand, uh, which was running and cleated. So again, really more diving into the technologies and how do we solve these problems that matter to athletes, whether it's cushioning or traction or protection. So breaking it down a little differently, but those are the kind of things that helped inform, I think, our approach with Speedland, really breaking down these functional elements and saying, well, if traction is important, how do we get the best traction we can? And if we know fit is important, how do we just design and develop the best fit system for trail specifically? And, and mm. kind of take that approach through all those performance elements is definitely a a learning, I think, that working at all those places helped us shape when it came to Speedland. And I would say that's essentially how we did it, right? I don't know if that's from the next question I'll go, but we really took a no compromise approach and just looked at all these different performance attributes yeah. and just one by one almost focused individually on them and then collectively put them together at the end. Kevin, I really like that comparison to soccer. And when I think about the shoes that I wear, I, kind of, I refer to them as my quiver of running shoes. Like they're really yep. an essential part of the, the running toolkit. And I take a lot of pride and care in them. And when I'm selecting that next shoe, it has a very specific purpose for the type of run I'm about to do. So you mentioned that you, you both worked in soccer and in basketball. So where does running come into the mix? What makes you become interested? Was there a work experience where you started working in the run line at one of these companies? Or Well, know? yeah, I mean, I think we... Did a fair amount of running, Kevin more on the innovation side, myself more on the inline side, but at, at Puma, especially, we're doing a, quite a bit of running product. And then also at Under Armour, quite a bit of running product as well. Mm -hmm. So they're just basketball was early on and then that carried on, but we've done quite a bit of running product through the years and for all types of runners. So I would say specifically as we transition to, to Speedland, we also have an interest in the outdoors and that kind of led us more into trail running and the focus giving a hyper focus to that so that's where our passion for the outdoors trail running all come together within speedland so that's our everyday life i guess i would say <laughs> yeah and i think that again looking at what the athletes are doing it's not kind of it's squarely edge of human performance frankly, there's really remarkable stuff that's happening in this sport. And if you're going to apply that sort of equipment mentality, you have to make sure it's going to resonate with the consumer. And so we're look, when we look at ultra runners, 
you know, these, as you're saying, you're noticing every little detail that we're paying attention to. And if Mm. that didn't happen, it wouldn't make sense, you know? So we really felt like there's a consumer mindset in trail where if there's an advantage that can be gained over the hundred K or the hundred miles, or if there's a technology application that hasn't been done before that resonates with this consumer, that there's a, there's a space there for us and and this new approach to things. So we, we wanted to see, if that was going to work. Yeah. And that's where we are. I mean, we, we feel like there's a consumer that's beyond trail running, but part of trail running, that's a lover of gear, right? They have other gear in their, in their, you said quiver a second ago, but it is a quiver of gear, right? And they might be skiers. They might be, they might be on their mountain bike and they might be trail runners. And all of that kind of cyclically goes together as part of their lifestyle. And that's really where Speedland came together is like, where's the equipment for your feet? Yeah. Yeah. We look at ski boots and people will wait a, a weeks for the right boot fitter to go see. And they'll spend a couple hours getting that product just right. Cycling is similar. similar. You'll sit on that bike and you'll go to the shop and get the angles measured and get it. And there's really nothing like that available in footwear and especially in trail where we feel like if you're spending 12, 20, 20 plus hours in a pair of shoes, you probably want that thing to fit just right and be, you know, as customized for you as is possible. So one other comment I want to make when I think about the breakdown of gear for a trail runner or an ultra runner specifically, for example, the shoe definitely is really important, but I think as our sport starts to push the limits in terms of distance and overall time on feet. So you have a lot of like hundred mile events. Now you're seeing 200 mile events. Now you're seeing these like multi-day stage races. Mm-hmm. I do definitely see also like the pack, the hydration system, all of that gear becoming maybe not quite as important, but very close. No, that's um, right there. And that's why I think you see a lot of these other shoe brands like Hoka and Ultra. They're not allowing a lot of their sponsored athletes to use gear from these other brands. They're starting to build, uh, what is it? Uh, vertically integrating or horizontally integrating. Anyways, they're making sure that they're building packs now for their athletes too, and handhelds and nutrition, all that kind of stuff. It's very interesting. So that was just a comment that came up. And I don't know if you guys are thinking the same way, ultimately, where you're going to have like speed land packs, but that just came to mind. Well, we'll do it (laughs) if we can do it better than what's out there. Or we, if we have a a take on it, a technology, something that we believe is going to be better to that consumer. I don't think... I can say, speak for Dave on this one. We don't want to do something just to do it, just to have it out there. Like that's not what this brand is going to be Mm. about. We really want to make sure that that promise of premium, high performance, durable product is going to be imbued in everything that we bring to market. So we'll do the hydration thing when we can do Mm. it in a way that's special and better. And so it is something that's on our radar for yeah. sure. And we don't look our look at Speedland as just a footwear brand for sure. We, we see it as, you know, a, an innovation brand for people who want to move fast in the mountains. So that leaves it pretty open for us to tackle a lot of these things as the opportunities come up. We're small. We're just going to be very careful about each step that we take. There's some white space impacts. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah, so and I, I don't mean to own this conversation. I should start asking questions, but one more comment there. I think that pack technology is really nascent. I use a Solomon pack and there's still a ton of bounce. Um, if I want to use one of those belts, if I'm running more than like 50 K, I get GI issues. If I'm wearing handhelds, I haven't been doing enough bicep curls in the gym for a hundred mile or either. It's lose, lose in a lot of different scenarios. And we, we, a lot of we hear that from just about everybody yeah. It's a similar tale. Like, I like this pack for one aspect, but this part of it sucks. And, you know, hey, this pack has great fit, but it's too hot. Or there's always something that's less than ideal. It's honestly similar. It's totally different product, but similar to the footwear conversation where Mm -hmm. we heard that about a lot of trail running footwear, where it's like, this offers great fit, but the cushioning grip aren't so good. Or the grip is good, but the fit isn't so good. I mean, that kind of led us to creating speed lands on the footwear sides. The, the same conversation can be had for packs and for many other things. So, yeah. Well, before we dive headlong into a lot of the Speedland product, I do want to talk a little bit more about entrepreneurship and the founding story of Speedland. First question is, have you guys always wanted to be entrepreneurs? Has this been the end game? I don't know that we would have said that five years ago, but I think we were talking about it five years ago as a, Hey, there's probably room and maybe kicking around the back of our minds, but 
I think we both come from families where there was entrepreneurship too. Yeah. Dave's dad had several businesses and my dad started his own business when I was 10. And that was certainly influential just to see that experience of growing a brand. I think some of that you, you get from, you know, who you are and some of it you get from what you're exposed to. And I think we had a little bit of each and what really cemented it, I think was just being in big corporations and three different ones and each runs its course for different reasons. You know, you get to your end of your, your path there and you have to ask yourself, you know, okay, what's next. And I think for both of us, the answer was not another big brand. I think that felt like, okay, it'll be more of the same under a different label and to grow and to learn and to do something new. It was necessary. It became pretty evident that the way we were going to do that was going to be doing it on our own. And that's how we came to that conclusion. I I don't think it was like necessarily a goal that we said, I've got to do this. It just became a self-evident thing that, Hey, we've collected these skills along the way. We know we work really well together. We overlap on certain things, but we're not exactly the same in terms of our skill sets. And we had similar passions for performance product and the outdoors. So it was a, a bit of serendipity, I would say, that maybe it had been s- staring us in the face for the last decade, but that <laughs> took us a little while to finally uh, take the bait. Yeah, that's fair. And I think an aspect of as you're you know, going through different stages in your life, you always want to keep growing. And it got to a point where, like I said, we'd been at the brands, we had done some things maybe repetitively over and over. And it was like, kind of time to grow. If you don't, if you don't grow, you die. And so it's time to grow. <laughs> Very cool. And how about the founding story of Speedland too? And like the mission you were, you created from the outset? Yeah, that was like pretty simple, very simple mission, which I think is, is in some ways the best missions, right? And I think we, we targeted what we wanted to do. And then it was really this idea of no compromise. Like, could we just take the approach of build the best of the best, don't compromise at any turn, and uh, see where that lands and, and deliver that to the athlete. When you're part of big brands, you're always having to compromise because there's these things called FOBs, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so you're always hitting that target price. And so we never even had that, right? We just sat down, said, okay, how do we optimize fit? How do we optimize traction? How do we optimize cushion? How do we optimize propulsion? How do we optimize? And we went down the list. And then we just partnered with the key partners in the industry that we thought could get us there. And it was what it was. And that's quite frankly, why the price is the price. And, <laughs> and that was the, the how we operate. We don't compromise. And we just take this very purist approach, which is quite opposite, honestly, of a big brand mentality. So you mentioned something really interesting there that I want to touch on. And I think a lot of people in the audience will not be familiar with the acronym FOB. Sure. And maybe also not familiar with the fact that a lot of trade-offs have to be made in order to get a shoe to a certain price to bring to market. So maybe talk a bit about that because I think that'll help people understand like why you're building what you're building and why the price point is what it is. Sure. Well, sure. There's FOB stands for freight on board. It's essentially the price that the brand pays the factory for the shoe. And so that is critical because most of the big brands are through wholesale. So there's got to be enough margin for the wholesale partner and then for the brand to make. It's a pretty strict target. It's included in what's called a product brief. Product brief is what kind of kicks off the creative process when coming up with a new shoe. So the brief will contain, let's say, the elements that are critical. It'll tell you a little bit about the consumer, what the competitive landscape is for this product, who it's going up against, and again, back to the FOB. So if your FOB is $25, it's probably somewhere between $110 shoe at retail. But that $25 means that's what you've got to spend when you're making this product uh, from the factory. Put in a couple bucks for an outsole and $350 for a midsole and a shank. And pretty soon, you just don't have that much money to really put in the best materials at every point that you want to. And that's where this inherent notion of compromise, I think, is built in to the big brands because you have to, basically. You're never going to get an unlimited FOB and you're never going to get an FOB that's all that high with a kind of wholesale structure in place. And that's the the difficult part of 
big brands. And I think what happens is they get really reliant on the products, the low end products that have very high margins and selling millions of those shoes. We can pick any brand, Nike selling Monarchs by the fistful, right? $70 white leather shoe that's not particularly inspired, but as they say, it keeps the lights on and that allows them to do something like an Alpha Fly or Next Percent. And so it's subsidizing with these products to, to make these special ones. And we just want to make the special ones. We want to make the good stuff. We want to be less like Ford and GM and more like a Ferrari. In other words, all the products being special, all highly desirable, still be profitable. That's our goal. We do want to make a, a business that sustains itself. We're not doing this like for, for just for fun, but it's very different model of doing it that way. And so that's... And, you know, just another example, we're doing it a little bit differently, both in terms of how we started the product, but also how we're running the business side of things. Yeah. I'm just a lay person, but it sounds to me like there's going to be a lot of re-education needed in the market for people to understand why shoes are priced the way they are. Because I think a lot of people just have a model in their head that like a new pair of shoes is going to cost me a hundred to 175 bucks, maybe a hundred. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and it is going to be an education process. And I think that's why we start by trying to reposition it as equipment, right? It's not shoes, it's equipment. Yeah. And then we say, here's why it's equipment. Because here's the boa dials we use. Those aren't used on trail footwear anywhere. And people say, well, boa dials have been used on trail footwear. Not, these are LI2s. They go forward and back. They aren't used on trail footwear anywhere. And then here's the Carbotex plate. Okay, a removable Carbotex plate. That's never been done. Here's the P-backs, uh, midsole, the supercritical P-backs. Again, that hasn't been out there. Here's the Michelin outsole with cuttable lugs. That's never been done. So as we start to tell people and we, and we go through the education process of why it's equipment, then it becomes a lot more clear. But we have to go through that process because it is new. Yeah, to the, a lot of people. The big brands like Nike and Adidas have conditioned people to to think the w- way you're saying that. Oh well, 120, 150 is high. Why should I pay 375? Right. And it's on us to deliver that better experience through the product. And we believe that the sum of these parts is something pretty special. But it's a it is an absolute education that you know. Hey, if if you're if commodity product is working for you and you're good in that, then we're not the product for you. And then we're not for everybody. We're not shy about that either. But if people are chasing FKTs or they're really going after wins and believe this kind of equipment can help them, or if you're just a prosumer, you like gear, like the latest and greatest, we, we like those consumers too. They're all important to us. That performance element is where we hang our hat. And so as long as the athletes and the product are saying it's delivering for them, we're hammered down. I think before we get into the rest of this, I think it'll be just good to tell listeners about the shoe. Describe the main model of the shoe, the value proposition of the shoe, what it's meant for, why it's priced the way it is. You've already talked about it a little bit, but I think just to set the rest of the discussion, it'll be good to pitch the sure. shoe. Sure. Well, the models, the the current model is the SLPDX. It stands for Speedland, and then PDX is obviously where we where we're located in Portland here. It's the guess the airport. That's the first iteration. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, but you know, the, like we said, we try to combine great partners, great technologies. I think we try to put that with performance attributes. So if we start with the, the fit being one of them, so we use dual BOA LI2 dials, but you have really this precision incremental fit that we think delivers better fit than uh, anybody in the industry in trail running. And it's heavily inspired, I would say, by the cycling industry where they offer dual boas for some years. So if you're a cyclist, you'd be familiar with that. But that gets back to the the fit. And then and coming from yeah. the athletes, when yeah. they're in these shoes for 15, 20 hours, zonal control of fit is something they haven't had. So the feedback we're getting so far is to be able to control the forefoot fit, a little different from the heel fit, based on whether you're ascending or descending where you are in the race. Oh, wow has proven and, and to do it quickly, obviously you can bend over on tighter laces, but like that's a chore when you're 80 miles into a race, you don't want to stop and retire laces, but to bump your tighten your shoe a little bit with a bow is actually really simple and pretty fast. I think we're proposing these solutions and then we're running all of them through the athletes to verify that they're functioning as we want them to for them. And that's one that has come back for sure that that's is working really well at the top of the list of yeah. what, why athletes are loving it. Yeah. And then, how about you know, durability? How about durability? Of the boa? 
yeah, like how long can, how many miles can you put on a shoe reliably and training it effectively? Yeah, I mean, that's always a tough one to, to answer. We, the supercritical PBAX midsole is a different style of PBAX midsole than what you'd find on a road shoe, right? Yeah. Those shoes tend to wear out quite quickly. I see people in forums saying they get yeah. 300 miles, but they're usually pretty flat after 100 to 150, where what we're seeing in this PBAX foam itself is it can go 450 or more. Other things are usually wearing out by that point. So again, depending on the ground that you're running on, the lugs may wear out if you're on a lot of rock or granite, for instance. But we're pretty confident saying it's a 400 plus mile shoe for most people. If you're doing trail to road, that's obviously harder on the lugs and you're going to wear them faster. But if you're running the forest park, you'd probably get four or 500 miles without a problem. Yeah. So we talked about how you're repositioning the shoe as a piece of equipment, which I think is brilliant. How else are you bringing this to market and attempting to convince trail runners like myself that it's worth the purchase. It's essential. There's a couple of ways. We mentioned it already. We're trying to do stuff through the lens of the athletes. So we're not out there bombarding uh, ads randomly. We're really targeting the, these consumers very specifically. And we're working with a, a bunch of athletes. We're seeding shoes out there and, and getting people to wear them and try them. I mean, we think that's a, a big part at the beginning is just letting other athletes see athletes in it um, and talk about it and understand what we're trying to do through them rather than us trying to push too much of it out there. I think the organic approach and, and doing it through athletes is a big part of it. And then the other thing we're doing differently is this was called the SLPDX. It's our launch model, but the PDX and the way that we set up the naming is really designed so that the next one that we do is going to be inspired by another city and another athlete from that location. And what you'll see is we'll adjust the material mix, we'll change the cushioning, or we'll change the outsole Compound. compounds, change plate stiffness based on that particular region of the country or the world eventually. So I think what we want to do then is highlight the customization that we can do by doing these different commissions. So it'll be the same basic chassis, but we can make it tune. actually tune quite differently, bring that to life by the athletes from the different regions that we're working in. I'm based here in Salt Lake City. I have a couple of friends who are, uh, they're gearheads. They fit that sort of psychographic profile that you've described in other interviews. If you are looking to bring the shoe to the Mountain West. Yeah. Uh, well, like the Red Rocks, if you're running on, you know, say, I mean, I know all the trails aren't that way, but let's just say somebody's running a lot of Red Rock, that might be a very different build than the compound, say, on the outsole that we would use for the, the one that's for Wildwood in, in Portland. Very different traction profiles, wear profiles, and that's just one example. Yeah, I'd say even our athletes, right? So for certain races, we even tune the SLPDX differently depending on the course, the length, and the, the, the terrain profile, right? right? So one of our athletes, Don, Don Reichelt, um, he ran a salt flats race in the shoe. We cut all the lugs and we changed the stiffness of the plate to make it basically into a super shoe, a road shoe, basically. And then oh. when he ran Leadville, we tuned the plate again, but differently. And then we also cut the lugs for him on that as well. Cause in Leadville, he needed a pretty fast trail shoe and it, he didn't need the extra right. lug depth, which also cuts down on the weight when you trim it as well. So, and, th and that would just go even back to terrain. If somebody was running, say in a dry climate in Southern California, they might permanently cut the lugs cause they're never going to need that, that uh, need six, and a half six and a half mils of lug depth. How are you convincing athletes in our sport when you're like doing this like seeding of shoes out into the to the community? What's your strategy for recruiting athletes? Because a lot of people are really married to their shoe brands. Like there's Hoka people, there's Ultra people, there's you know Nike people. Like how do you break through and, and get people to try new stuff? It's pretty cool, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't, I'd say we're mostly letting them come to us. <laughs> we're not chasing a lot of people right now. Again, we want to work with people who like the technology and are interested enough that they come to us and ask the questions and we'll get on the call. We'll talk them through it. If they have a shoe deal, we'll talk through that too. But I would say in, as a self-funded two-person company, we're more interested in people who want to be a 
part of the company who want to be partners with us and give us that feedback, give us the input on developing this product on the next one and, and be more part of the team instead of just a hired gun, if that makes sense. We yeah. will pay athletes if, if they're the right athlete and that's what they want. We understand some people need to put food on the table and they are leaving a deal that gave them cash. They might need it, but we like to give people part of the company and have them be along for the ride and have skin in the game and help us make this the company that it can be. It's as much about personality as where they're finishing on the podium. Honestly, we want the right people who are great athletes who are going to give us the feedback we need. They have to be a certain level, right, to, to give that feedback. But again, it's not that we're chasing everybody who's had a first place up this year, you know. We're not trying to convince anybody. And honestly, like you put the SLPDX on, if you don't think that's better fit than what you're getting, then it's probably not the product for you. Literally, like that's a lot of times what we'll do when we go to a race is somebody will ask about it and we'll say, okay, or put it on and, and leave your other trail shoe on the other foot. And they put it on and more often than not, I would say they're like, wow, the fit on this is much, much better than what I have on my other foot, you know? So that just lets the, the product kind of sells itself. We don't have to convince anybody. It's and like, I, yeah. And, it, and, and <laughs> to circle back, I think you'd ask for kind of a sweet spot on the shoe or yeah. the, what, what the shoe is good, yeah. good for yeah. how we would describe it. And I think, again, we built it to be an ultra product, a fast technical product. And I think we've hit that. I think what we found is the athletes are telling us it's the sweet spots, like a marathon to hundred K yeah. for some people past hundred K there's not enough cushioning there. And we see a lot of that in the market, right? There's just higher stack heights and there's the shoes that sort of take the wear and tear out of it. And right now we don't have probably something that goes up against that. But for somebody who's looking for a fast technical shoe in that zone, I think that's where, where the sweet spot is. That's the, DSL. that's the sweet spot. That being said, we have had quite a few athletes obviously run hundreds, um, hundred mile races, sorry, yeah. hundred mile races in it without a problem. We don't want to say you can't, but if we're, if we have to give a sweet spot, yeah. we would say 50 to hundred K. Am I correct in saying Dean Carnazis is one of your athletes? He is. Very cool. So he's an example of somebody who's no longer in a competition stage of his career, but he still thinks about the sport in interesting ways. He's still very involved in it. And I think that's an example of somebody who is relatable to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. It's who, it's who he is. He's, you know, the godfather of this whole thing in a way. And, and we look, he's certainly an athlete, still a great athlete. He's going to podium in his age group, anything he does. Yeah. But beyond that, the feedback that he can give us is worth it. And then just as an ambassador, just as a, a you know, guy that's out there, authentic as can be and really passionate about it, we couldn't ask for more from an ambassador than that. We've been talking about this peripherally for the last half hour, but I want to um, ask it directly. And it's all about your target persona. I had Mark Ganey on the show about two months ago, and he introduced me to this. It's called an inch wide, mile deep philosophy of entrepreneurship, where you focus very, very, very specifically on a particular niche of the industry. And with Strava early on, it was these very competitive weekend warrior cyclists. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if, if you think about marketing in the same way, because I've, I've heard this term gearheads used, but maybe you could talk about uh, the psychographic and demographic profile of your target customer. Sure. I think similar in the sense of what you just described with Mark and the focusing on that kind of when he, when you said the, the focusing deeply on that weekend, that cyclist, yeah. um, I'd say we're doing the same thing on the trail running front and going, it is a very sharp niche. Uh, niche, but I would say that, yeah, you go sharp and you go deep and you go very targeted with that. But at the same time, that, that has a lot of room to expand. Right. And obviously just like Strava that you just described is people, I guess, if you were early on, of course you associate it to cycling, but now I'm not sure people just associate, obviously people don't just associate it to cycling. Right. right? associated right. to many other things. So I would just say a, a similar, we're solving for a specific consumer. We are going just very deep and very focused on that. But as time goes on, obviously a lot of what we're doing can be applied in a much broader context, but we don't want to get distracted by that right now. We want to do what you said at the start. So yeah, I think we want to really prove ourselves that 
uh, as a hyper-performance brand, and I think we want to be as authentic as we can. I think if you start trying to grow too fast, if, if somebody saw Speedland in basketball or training or something else, all of a sudden we'd lose that ultra-consumer, right? We, we're going to stay super focused on them, but again, listen to them as well. And what else do they need in their lives that we can help them with? What other problems are out there to solve? So we're we're listening we're open for those but we're gonna we are gonna stay really focused on that mountain consumer for a while here a couple more business questions mm-hmm. who have you looked to for inspiration starting a running brand at this stage of the sport both inside of running and outside of running okay let's we mentioned the commission idea right yeah, yeah. so let's start there so that was uh, inspired by a brand called singer and i don't know how many of your, your listeners will know I'm singer not familiar either yeah, so Singer Singer is basically a what do you call them a tuner? I don't know if I'd call them that, but a Singer Porsche. So they basically take a Porsche and they how would you describe Singer? Well, I mean, <laughs> they're taking an old yeah. an older Porsche model from you know the nine six four and they're reimagining it. There's like modern technology. So I don't want to use the term resto mod because <laughs> that's, right. that's not exactly what they do. But they they reinvent the nine eleven at the highest levels of every everything, and every one of them is made to order. So everybody, so who, it's a commission. Guess one, it's a commission. And so when you look at their Instagram or their website, you'll see the Hong Kong Commission or the Hollywood Commission, and they're all based on where that person is from and how they spec out the car. And so we just like that idea that instead of, oh, the fall, winter, 22 colorways, like we're, we're just done with the season, the force, like, oh, got to have new colors, got to yeah. have this like force product. That's releases. another thing from the big brands that you just grow tired of. You just see like, God, the team is asked to reinvent this shoe. And the one that they're reinventing hasn't even hit the market <laughs> yet. And they're already working on a new version. And it's just crazy. And so I think this idea that we'll work with our athlete, will customize the shoot for the best performance in the region that they live and run and race in. And then we'll offer that to consumers in small numbers. And when they're gone, they're gone. And it's not a fall winter thing or a seasonal thing. It's about that athlete in that region. And, and I think that that just, I think was an inspiration for us to take away this kind of generic season thing and, and, use a connotation that says it's something special and unique. So, you know, that, that's one example. Yeah. And that would obviously be outside of running. I would say within running, we are actually really trying to do something different, right? A different business model, different type of product. So a lot of times when people through, through this whole process, people have asked us, well, what would you compare Speedland to? And the the honest answer is really nothing. (laughs) We didn't really look at something else within the running industry to create it. So I think that's a lot of the feedback we're getting that it actually doesn't remind people of anything because it's different. So you're treating this like category creation in some sense. Yeah, I think it is in a way. It's not as though there haven't been trail shoes, but we started off talking price point and that's certainly new territory and it's draws the love and the hate, but it's, it is what it is because of how the shoe is built and the, the kind of attitude we're bringing to it. It's not done just for the shock value. It's not like we said, well, we'll build this hundred dollar shoe and then we'll charge four times as much to get attention, you know? And I think that's the kind of thing that consumers need to see the product and try it and feel it in order to appreciate it. It's easy to look on the web and say, well, it looks like another shoe. So who cares, you know, but we're, we're, we're patient and we know it's going to take some while. It's going to take a little while to get used to the price point, to get used to the customization piece. It has a drop in midsole. So in theory, we could supply new midsoles. If somebody ran 400 miles and still had more in that shoe, we could send a new one. If they wanted a different plate, we hope to get to a point where we can customize the stiffness of that plate based on what they need. So there's a lot of runway within that for us to give people unique experiences. And that's, you know, we hope to get there. I am curious if you can talk about other advantages you have building a new running brand in this area. And also any concerns or worries you have about being in that position. Like if there are more established companies that are seeing what you're doing, they're impressed, they're seeing the market for a bear out and they're saying, oh, we're going to take some resources. We're going to try to copy what they're doing and just like take over that category too. Well, 
Okay, good, good question. The second part yeah. is always always something that you deal with in footwear. We're filing IP where we can and trying to protect ourselves, but that's only so good. If you can't enforce it worldwide, it's, it doesn't, patents sometimes don't mean too much. So it's really about staying ahead of it. I yeah. think it's being the fast mover. I think we have an advantage in that regard, being a smaller company. Yeah. Uh, we can move and react much quicker. We know this for sure. Just decision-making process is much faster and more efficient. But we're very aware that other brands are watching what we're doing. If we prove that people will buy a high-quality, high-performance product at that price point, for sure they'll follow us. We're seeing it creep up already. A TRE, there's some brands creeping up. And that's not a bad thing if the consumer is getting better choices. That's how we look at it. And if somebody wants to, to try some of the specific things that we're trying, we just got to keep yep. improving and stay ahead of them. It's similar to the alpha fly and next percent. Like they're still leading because they started the whole thing and there's a lot of people chasing them. There's some gr- other good options out there now, but Nike's staying ahead of it because they're, they're leaders. And so for us, that's what we're going to do as a small company is just continually stay ahead of it. Yeah. And they're, they would have to be willing to raise prices as well. Right. Because yeah all the stuff that we're using and gets you to a certain price because it gets you to a certain price. And that's uh, a good moat. Yeah. Most brands aren't going to be willing to go there, even if they copied or looked at some of the things we were doing and it would have to be done a little bit differently, compromised to do that. So I think it will happen. And we're already starting to see some things come on the horizon where we're like, okay, that took influence from us, but that's okay. That's, yeah. that's the end. We'll close it out with any other advantages you think you have in the market. Well, we're nimble, right? We're small, so we're nimble, and we can we can do things quite a bit quicker, I would say, than than big brands. And that's regarding, well, it's regarding changes and decision making, right? It's just just think- us, but then also factories overseas, all that thing. Like we can make changes real time, very very quickly, um, and react quickly, which. We don't have to turn that big ship. Some of the other brands do. Yeah, and I, I related to that is our, our relationship with our athletes. Yeah. I think one of the things that's just exceedingly frustrating at the big brands is how hard it is to get close to the athletes. As soon as there's an athlete manager in place and coordinating meetings, it can take weeks before you can get in front of someone and then weeks again to hear back. And it's silly. It shouldn't be that way. But it, for whatever reason, the layers and the matrices make it difficult we're texting our yeah. our athletes almost daily, whether they send us a little inspiration, their own drawing of an idea, or we're saying, hey, what do you think of this? And even from the trail and on the early stuff, we were getting texts and I like this, or this isn't working or look at this. And I think that is, uh, it seems obvious, but it's not. And it's a huge advantage for us because it's, it's just, it's, we're all about making them better and solving their problems. And they're in our ear about it. They know it's their opportunity. And so it's up to us not to blow that. Yeah. We just actually had one of our athletes join us at TRE. I mean, that doesn't, Righteous. That doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. And it was just organic. He just came with us. <laughs> I dig it. That is cool. Yeah. Yeah. We're sharing rooms. We're doing it. Grassroots. <laughs> you know? I mean, we, that's the way you do it though. We're not here as a, small boutique high performance brand to try to pretend like we're nike or we're adidas because no. i mean we don't want to be that and i don't think our athletes want us to be that and no. we'll, we won't bring newness to the sport if we try to pretend like we're that so we're going to be us and we're going to keep you know pushing on this direction until it, you know somebody shows us that it doesn't work we just want it to be organic be part of uh, what we do part of our life or actually we're going to go run a race in january in arizona with one of our athletes and a bunch of his friends. And it's just like, we're just going to hang out, you know, and it's not, there's no, it's just who we are. It's just no agenda. It's just, we're just going to go hang out, you know, has a big house. He's going to, we're going to run a big house and and we're all just going to stay and, you know, have fun running the, running the ultra race. So it's a fun community for sure. If you have a way to document that and throw up like a YouTube video, that would be great content that like people like myself would devour like a weekend with Speedlander. <laughs> yeah, <we will>. like <laughs> that. For sure. yeah. Last business question before we go to the lightning round. What have been some lessons you've learned in this entrepreneurial journey, building the business? 
I think the, the, the big learning is you open up, you really uncover your blind spots. We've been in the industry 24 years and you, you see a lot at, at big brands. And depending on how curious you are, you kick around some new corners when you can. But when you're responsible end to end, you're going to find out just what you don't know. And obviously, you don't know that going in. You just have to be ready to deal with it. If these kind of that attitude, like, okay, there's a lot of stuff that's going to come up and I'm going to have to learn some new stuff, but be ready for it. That's been a, a big learning. I'd say it's just, I'd say there's a lot of fires you got to put out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so not in a bad way, but there's a lot of things that happen unexpectedly every week. And you're like, oh, I didn't see that one coming. And that's actually good learning for us too, though, because then we learn how to react and we're better the next time something like that comes up. So that's ongoing. I'm, I'm starting to learn. <laughs> yeah, I think you can't approach it like you have it all figured out and you know exactly how everything's going to go. You got to be in your ready position and be ready to move any direction at any moment type of thing, you know, and it's exciting. Like Dave said, we're learning new stuff. It's what we signed on for. We'd love, you know, the chance to get close to a community that's really full of interesting, cool people. That's a super nice benefit to the whole thing. Serving people and athletes who are great people makes it a lot easier to do. So good learnings there. And I'd say opportunity-wise, opportunities just organically come up and you have to be willing to take that opportunity when it comes and run with it. Or say no to it. Or say no to it, one or the other. But they don't, sometimes they're not planned. So you just, it's one of those things where you just have to keep pushing forward keep the grind, keep going. But when those opportunities come up, they, they just come up organically a lot of times too. I think when like the rest of the industry zigs and you guys zag, like you have, I imagine a lot of stuff comes in, Ben, like you talked about athletes reaching out to you mm-hmm. to demo the shoe and to be a part of what you're doing. So I think that's one of the benefits of differentiating, like truly differentiating. Yeah. Yeah. We knew you can't come into the running market or the trail running market and have a soft point of difference you, you, you'll get forgotten there's just too much good product and too many well-known brands and we knew that we had to have that sharp point now the price point has become maybe the talking point but we just think that this kind of this idea of looking at the athlete who cares about the aggregation of marginal gains and who gets that idea that every little half percent i can eke out is going to make a difference that's yeah. where this yeah kind of comes from the world does not need another footwear brand we say that <laughs> i mean it really doesn't unless you are an bring, equipment brand yeah unless you can bring something with this point of difference and a reason that doesn't exist yeah. uh, then, then okay righteous so as we move on to this lightning round, which is not really a lightning round, but it just signifies that the conversation is slowly coming to an end. This is a common theme on pretty much every episode, but do either of you have any thoughts on how we can better market slash grow the sport of trail running? That's a good question. I think making it more like some of the stuff that's happening now through YouTube and through some of these live streaming events is a great way to start. Like, mm-hmm. let's get awareness up and let people know that, make it exciting to watch. It's been a, a hard thing to track racers in the past, right? here, like looking on a website and hoping it updates and not very interactive. And I think the idea of getting some of these flybys and getting drone shots and getting cameras that people are carrying can make it way more exciting. So I think that's one way to help raise awareness, make it more exciting. I mean, I think we can strengthen the culture of it. I think it has a strong culture already. But when I say that, I don't want to show my hand too much, but like showing parallels between what's happening with like cycling, right? Take a brand like Rafa mm. and Rafa really, really a culture brand in a way. They put out good product, but they also have hubs where people meet, people hang out, people drink coffee, they go for a ride, all the, everything that Rafa is doing. I mean, think about how that could apply to trail running and where what trail running could do with that and if you take that it's a totally different business model it doesn't exist and i think there's a lot of runway for trail running are there any recent books movies or podcasts that you've consumed that have changed the way you think or were just interesting that the audience should uh, check out themselves When we were first starting, I'll I'll jump in and say reading Let My People Go Surfing, the origin story of Patagonia and Von Chouinard and how that came to be. It was definitely an inspirational 
tale and a cautionary one too, and in a funny way, because that very much started out solving problems, making equipment that didn't exist, making equipment that was better. And it, it got out of control from his perspective, right? It got too big to, to really be as environmentally responsible as he wanted it to be initially. And But a great tale of how you build customer loyalty and how to really listen to, to that athlete and make sure that you're delivering things that matter to them, not just getting caught up and making more stuff. Um, so I, I, you know, that was a good one. Yeah. I'm a heavy podcast guy, so I could go on and on about podcasts. I guess tacking onto that, if I'm going to recommend a podcast, obviously the very famous, how I built this, but I'm going back to maybe a good one to start for people. Cause it's way back in the archives is uh, Shenards, the founder of Patagonia. That's probably one of the best ones on there's many great ones but that's a great one that tells basically the story of let my people go surfing right Mm -hmm. basically tells that story um in that podcast and it's fantastic so yeah probably recommend many podcasts and i'll start with how i built this and and you're given a billboard on a very well populated highway totally free space what message are you putting on there for drive-bys to see for people to see That's interesting. We were just having this conversation. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's such a tough one. Do you want to set the tone of your brand? Do you want to talk about product benefits? We're so athlete-centric that we were talking about doing something with an athlete recently. Mm -hmm. That's not probably too far off base because everything we do at the company, even though it all comes back to product, it revolves around our athletes. So how we champion our athletes and how we uh, reinforce that idea. I think it would have to have something to do with the athlete. Yeah. For sure. well, cool. Well, Hey, I really like you guys a lot. I really appreciate the, the time here today. Before we go, I'll make sure to plug all of your stuff in our weekly newsletter in the show notes, but in case people don't check those out, where can they find you and what initiatives do you want to make them aware of? Well, you can find us at runspeedland.com. And uh, if you want to go back to our old hacking stuff, you can go on YouTube and find our (laughs) speed hack show. If you want to see some of the really (laughs) early origins. After we left Under Armour, we did a little YouTube channel for about a year. We were in the penalty box sitting out non-competes, but we were tearing up shoes and trying to get better. And so that's, it's entertainment anyway. But so that, then you can go to, from that, you can go to speed hack Kevin and speed hack Dave on on Instagram. Instagram. Cool. (laughs) We will definitely put that in the show notes too. That is great content. I'm sure. I'm sure. It's funny. Definitely. Guys, this has been great. Can't thank you enough. All right. All right. Thanks Thanks a lot. Okay. That's a wrap. If you haven't already done so, please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing these episodes on social media, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, wherever you spend your most time. We are right smack in the middle of that phase where grassroots organic word of mouth marketing is so important. I truly mean this when I say every action that you take to help promote the show helps more people discover it. So... Thank you, thank you, thank you for whatever you were able to do to help support. Until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson. I love being here.